Bella Lugosi is dead. As Bella got older and sicker, his movies got smaller and cheaper. His last A-list production was Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which didn't actually star Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster, but did actually star Bella Lugosi as Dracula. 66 years old, and they still wouldn't acknowledge him in the title. He played a world dominator in drag comedy, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, a mad scientist in Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, and he narrated Ed Wood's film, Glenn or Glenda. In 1952, he finally got his name in the title. Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, a $12,000 cheapie starring a Jerry Lewis impersonator that was shot in only six days. Two years later, his fifth wife came home from work and found Bella dead on the sofa. He was 73 years old, but his name still rang enough bells for a photographer to snap a shot of his corpse being wheeled away by the undertakers. It's 1956. Bella Lugosi is dead. And vampires weren't feeling too good either. The Conference of Catholic Bishops called 1957's Black and White Blood of Dracula hokey. 1958's Black and White Return of Dracula was half of a double feature of Quickie Creepies, which the LA Times described as a movie about a vampire pulling the usual line of boyish pranks. No one was scared of vampires anymore. They were jokes, punchlines, not even worthy of A-list notice. Get in your coffins, my blood-sucking friends. It's time to turn out the lights. But over in England, something was happening at Duffelcoat Manor. During World War II, Down Place, a stately home on the banks of the Thames, had been used to store duffelcoats for the military. The roof leaked, the coats soaked up the water, and the waterlogged weight of the coats caused the entire interior of Down Place to collapse. A dinky little film company bought the derelict estate in 1951 and turned it into a film studio, cranking out cheap quota-filling flicks like Lady in the Fog, The Gambler and the Lady, The Lady Craved Excitement, What the Butler Saw, The Private Life of Henry IX, The Bank Messenger Mystery, Meet Simon Cherry, Someone at the Door to Have and to Hold. Then, in 1955, Despite all their best efforts, they had a huge hit with the motion picture adaptation of a popular BBC science fiction serial from television, The Quatermass Experiment. Success caught them unprepared, and they didn't have a follow-up ready. Quickly, they decided that instead of a menace from outer space, they'd find a monster from within the Earth, and X the Unknown became another hit. Startled by all this sudden success and completely and totally out of ideas, this little studio would become the home of the next step in vampire evolution in a story so shocking, so kinky, and so epic we could only call it The Rise and Fall of Hammer Films, Boobs, Blood, and the British Board of Film Censors. 
welcome to Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. <laughs> Embarrassed into paralysis by their two hits, Hammer Films truly did not know what to do next. Enter the Good Old Boy Network. James Carreras, the head of Hammer, networked relentlessly at his clubs, finding American partners to pay Hammer in advance for the American distribution rights for their films. He then used those advances to actually pay to make the films. One of these schmoozies, Elliot Hyman of Associated Artist Pictures, had an idea for James. Yeah, I got these fellas, see? Milton Sabatsky and Max Rosenberg, see? They showed up on our doorstep with a wild, wild script, see? Universal, see? They had a big hit 26 years ago with Frankenstein. But did you know that Frankenstein was a book before it was a movie? Go figure. It's written by some dead broad. Can you believe it? Milton Sabotsky and Max Rosenberg were bottom-feeding hustlers who'd written and produced a jukebox musical, Rock, 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 about the trials and tribulations of a young girl trying to raise enough money to buy a simple strapless dress so she could attend her prom. It became a low-key hit thanks to performances by Chuck Berry and Connie Francis, and now Sabotsky and Rosenberg had a new idea. A brand new adaptation of Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Hyman sent Hammer their script, and Hammer hated it. Mostly because it was 55 minutes long and they were terrified of getting sued by Universal, producers of 1931's iconic Frankenstein. An internal Hammer memo read, we suggest that the screenplay is carefully checked against the original film by someone competent to recognize infringement of copyrights. Good idea! More challenging than copyright infringement, however, was the British Board of Film Censors, who had called Hammer's previous two sci-fi movies Nauseating and revolting! Disgusting rather than frightening. Pretty-nauseating. And... What nonsense! The problem was, British movies could only be released with a classification certificate from the British Board of Film Censors, and they had three classification levels. U for unrestricted, suitable for all audiences. A for adult content, no children under 12 unless accompanied by a parent or a guardian. X, not to be screened for children under 16. Many cinemas refused to screen X films outright, but at least an X film could be screened. If your film wasn't even approved for an X certificate, back on the shelf it went, never to see the light of day, and you would be eating that budget and consuming those losses for breakfast. Hammer created the bigger budgets they needed for these sci-fi and horror movies they were contemplating by selling the rights in advance to America, film by film, because these movies cost cash. It was basically the motion picture producer equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. And one unapproved movie, one movie without a certificate, one film that couldn't be released, and Hammer's entire house of cards would collapse. 
their financing was that precarious. Hammer decided to bet everything on their Frankenstein project. They paid off Sabotsky and Rosenberg and rewrote the script internally. They also decided to try something new. Color film. It was more expensive, and that raised the stakes, but they had Warner Brothers money this time, and they knew the times were a-changing. Soon, black and white movies would be for Grandma and Woody Allen. The kids were kooky for color. With sweaty palms, a nervous tick, and a possibly copyright-infringing screenplay, Hammer started production on Great Britain's very first color horror movie. Nervously adjusting its tie and with a (laughs) forced chuckle, Hammer submitted its script for The Curse of Frankenstein to the British Board of Film Classification. We're remaking in color and with our tongue in both cheeks, Frankenstein. (laughs) Herewith, a script which we have received from America (laughs) and which we know we must submit to you. Upon receipt of your 20-page reply, (laughs) we will make an appointment to see you. (laughs) Happy reading. The British Board of Film Censors was not amused. Whatever contortions their tongue may perform, such a film will obviously be classified X. I think this is the first horror film to be made in colour in this country. And a good deal will depend on what use is made of the colour. Another reader said, This is a loathsome story and I regret that it should come from a British team. We have had some horrors from America, but none in my experience without some saving humour or light interlude. The writer of this script seems to think that the X classification is a depository for sewage. But this depository for sewage turned out to be a depository for sewage full of gold, bowing and scraping and regreen to every cut and every change, hammer, gut their X certificate, and released Curse of Frankenstein with its monstrous 150-pound budget. And the movie made 3.5 million pounds at the box office. Ka-ching! As one Hammer executive wrote excitedly, England is sweltering in a heat wave and nothing is taking any money except the Curse of Frankenstein. Question. How to make more money? Answer. A sequel. And lo, a sequel to Curse of Frankenstein was greenlit. Question. How to make even more money? Answer. You made Frankenstein. Now, keep copying Universal. It's not the time to lose your courage, my friend. Remake Dracula. And lo, it was done. This time, however, Hammer didn't just have the script read by someone competent to recognize infringement of copyright. They also made a partnership deal with Universal, just in case. A deal that took so long to negotiate that their Dracula was finished filming long before the 80-page contract was signed. Previously... Vampire pictures belonged to the black and white past, but Hammer wanted to make their Dracula live in vivid contemporary color, 
bursting off the screen with stake-pounding, fang-piercing action full of ejaculations of bright red blood. The British Board of Film Censors was not amused. The curse of the thing is Technicolor blood. Why need vampires be messier feeders than anyone else? Certainly strong cautions will be necessary on shots of blood. And of course, some of the stake work is prohibitive. There should be nothing more to indicate that the various vampires are to be transfixed by a stake through the heart than a shot of the mallet and stake being picked up, followed, if necessary, by a shot of the stake being driven home out of frame. Shots of it being planted on the corpse, shots of the corpse while it is being driven in or after, and all shots of the vampire writhing and the sound of its screams should be omitted. And of course, no sex, please. I would add that anything which cross-emphasizes the sex aspect of the story is likely, in a horror subject of this kind, to involve cuts in the completed film. When the woman embraces Jonathan, she should not be seen to sink her teeth in his neck. Here and elsewhere, the appearance of the vampires should not be too revolting, and neither they nor their victims should be shown with clothes or faces smeared with blood. Hat in hand, Hammer agreed to most of the cuts. They were so confident of their film that on November 5th, 1957, an ad ran in the trade papers reading... November 5th is no ordinary day. November 5th is a day to remember. November 5th is Guy Fawkes Day. November 5th is the day William of Orange landed at Torbay. November 5th is polling day in the USA. But the most important of all, today is V-Day. Hammer Films Productions, Dracula, commences shooting at Bray Studios. They cast Peter Cushing as Van Helsing because he was famous on television, and Christopher Lee as Dracula because he was tall. And everyone was very, very careful not to watch the 1931 Dracula because they wanted to be doing something new. And they did. But still, they needed that X certificate. Hammer's entire financial future was dependent on it. First, they tried to submit the completed film to the British Board of Film Censors in black and white. But the board knew a dirty trick when they saw one and declared that they would not pass Dracula until they saw it in color. So, Hammer sent them a color print and chaos ensued. We object to Mina's expanse of bare chest! This motion picture is uncouth, uneducated, disgusting, and vulgar! The whole episode of Dracula and Mina together, whenever either of them shows sexual pleasure, there must be no kissing or fondling. Real ape. There is still a strong sex element in this scene. This is due to Mina's anticipating expression in close-up and Dracula's face as it hovers over Mina's before he applies himself to her neck. As the release date approached and the cuts kept piling up, Hammer wrote a pleading letter. These pictures get an X certificate which immediately bars everybody under 16 years of age from seeing them. The X certificate also means that approximately 800 cinemas who call themselves family houses will not book our pictures. The horror audience is a very specialized one, and many people who go to X for sex pictures will not go to see a horror film. 
Naturally, those who do go to see horror films expect to see something out of the ordinary. With the poor state of our industry, it would be a terrible thing if the horror addicts go to see horror pictures and there's no horror in them. In other words, we will lose this audience. There has always, always been a horror audience since movies began, and nobody has ever been the worse for it. Hammer tried everything. They pleaded that the film was already finished. It was too late to cut. The censors would destroy the British film industry. Finally, barely ten days before Dracula made its world premiere in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the censors gave it a reluctant X-certificate. And on Thursday, May 8th, 1958, audiences sat down in the theater. The movie began, and the camera dollied in on Dracula's coffin, helpfully labeled Dracula, just in case anyone was confused that it might be somebody else's coffin in a movie named Dracula. The score bangs. The score crashes. Then, some unseen crew member blows a wad of bright red blood all over the coffin like it's a teenager's sticky sock. And in this wet burst of ejaculatory excess, Dracula rose from the grave and lived again. Playing mix and match with its characters, Dracula ran a breakneck 81 minutes. It was vivid. It was physical. It ended with a giant action scene, and it was in eye-popping color, slashing the audience's eyeballs with dripping blood, bloody fangs, and the bright red contact lenses worn by Christopher Lee. Even today, Hammer's 1958 Dracula is alive. It's juicy. It's bloody. It is Pretty breathtaking, to be honest. Dracula made more money than The Curse of Frankenstein. Box office line stretched for a quarter of a mile. It smashed box office records like plates at a Greek restaurant. Christopher Lee claimed that the head of Universal Studios told them it took Universal out of bankruptcy. Some of the reasons Dracula resonated were accidental. The production designer built modern, cobweb-free, contemporary interiors for Castle Dracula that the Hammer honchos hated, but they'd already spent too much money building the sets to tear them down. And that worked just fine for the writer and director because those sets are part of what makes the movie feel so alive and modern. They didn't want to make a gothic period piece. They wanted to make a contemporary thriller. Christopher Lee refused to watch Bela Lugosi's Dracula before making his Dracula, and Terence Fisher, the director, refused to watch it either. Their Dracula would be a now cat, living in a modern castle full of every consumer convenience, a hip dude who is irresistible to women and unstoppable by men. From 1931 to 1958, vampires had been played for laughs and aimed at children. This time, they were geared towards adults and covered in sex. And, despite what they told the British Board of Film Censors, that sex was entirely on purpose. I think my greatest contribution to the Dracula myth was to bring out the underlying sexual element in the story, said director Terence Fisher. When the actress playing Mina asked how she should play the scene after Dracula comes to her in the night, Fisher told her, You should imagine you have had one whale of a sexual night, the one of your whole sexual experience. Give me that in your face. Soon, Universal was twisting Hammer's arm for a sequel, and Hammer 
over-delivered with 15 sequels. Nine sequels featuring Dracula, one about Elizabeth Bathory, three movies based on Carmilla, one about vampires running a circus, and one about a vampire who knows kung fu. These movies follow a strict formula. All Hammer films open with a carriage ride through the woods and close with Dracula dissolving into hamburgery bones. In between, there are acres of cleavage, gallons of bright red blood, and many, many, many pairs of poorly fitted vampire teeth protruding from actors' mouths. Upholstered in red velvet, with corner-cutting set construction concealed by swirling dry ice, Hammer consistently made vampires physical, virile, sexy, and alive. The least consistent thing about them was the location of their oh-so-stakeable hearts. Sometimes it was in the center of their chest, sometimes over on the side, maybe to the right, maybe to the left, sometimes all the way down by their belt buckles. Before Hammer, vampire sexuality was mostly implied, but Hammer turned subtext into text, and they made that text super-duper kinky. The vampire's sexual organ, the place where the action lay, was the same for women as it was for men. In the mouth. It was red. It was wet. It was hungry. It was insatiable. Plus, it had two very phallic fangs. It was a sucking orifice in a double-donged pokey place. It sucks, and it pierces, and every neck is a virginal hymen until it's popped by fangs and sucked by lips, at which point it develops rotting sores like VD. The two holes the vampire makes were no longer discreet little double dots. In Hammer's hand, they became enormous, superating, pustulant wounds made of chunky, multicolored wax. Vampires have always been about disease, and you know that from Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. And 1931's Dracula had already delivered the venereal disease scare film to beat all venereal disease scare films. So why was Hammer going back to 1931? No. Hammer was all about the now, man, and it had found a new fear of some infectious disease to exploit. Because there was a new disease stalking England's green and pleasant land, a new disease getting passed from one innocent victim to another, a new disease that anyone could catch at any time, especially the youths. It was a disease called dope. Dope. Teenage drug addicts of London's nightlife. These girls are the city's damn souls. I'm going dope probe, secrets of the drug takers. The clientele was crazy, really gone. From the bohemian lunatic fringe to the small-time crooks and America's on furlough. From musicians dropping by for the fun of the ride to teenage girls following the pack. She was chained to him, tighter than ever was a medieval slave girl, by the bangles of her dope hunger. Professor Ford's prescription to get drugs. CID probe drug pipeline. Spivs run racket in dope. News through lightly on drug addicts. And these devil drugs all came from the same circle of hell. Dear sir, we constantly hear of white girls being induced to become drug addicts through the machinations of reefer-smoking Negroes. This degradation of our women must stop. Teenage girls are falling victim to marijuana cigarettes given them by coloured seamen. The young girls, in particular, abuse themselves in a nauseating fashion before their drug suppliers. Negroes, many of them. Sometimes the dealer tantalises his victims, refusing to sell until one of the girls has danced with him. 
eyes rolling, body twitching, a 16-year-old girl then slides into the motions of bebop in the arms of the black peddler. A pretty, a blonde-haired 17-year-old girl was said by Detective Inspector Margaret Held to have been smoking Indian hemp on and off since she met a coloured man at a party 18 months ago. Hammer's vampire films featured, to my count, exactly one black actor, but they were all about fears of the foreigner, the exotic other, the man from overseas who arrives on our shores to steal our women and poison our youths with a disease called dope. Terror of a corrupting foreigner had been encoded in Dracula's DNA since Bram Stoker wrote his book, but Hammer updated that fear very, very specifically. Dracula's screenplay actually describes the vampire's hold on his victim as that of a drug addict yearning for his next fix. In the movie, Van Helsing describes vampires as, quote, drug addicts who are helpless before their hunger, and the movie spends a lot of time on neck wounds, the original track marks, visible venous evidence of vampirism. When the track marks on Mina's neck are revealed, Van Helsing immediately arranges an intervention, instructing her parents and husband to lock the doors and windows and listen only to him, a trained medical doctor. Not the other doctors who think they know what's going on, but someone who has encountered this before. He's coached people through their withdrawal. He then commands them to keep garlic in her room, no matter how much she complains. Mina's going to have to go cold turkey on vampirism. However, Mina succumbs to her addiction and passes this disease on to innocent children. When Lucy is bitten, Van Helsing must explain to her family, this is not Lucy, the sister you know and love. It is only a shell possessed and corrupted by the evils of dope. I, I mean Dracula. Finally, Van Helsing and Arthur Holmwood go to the border they share with Ingoldstadt to see who's importing Dracula's coffin on the trail of the illegal international trade in vampirism. Lucy's cure by blood transfusion becomes an erotic fantasia of slow, lingering shots of hypodermic needles and tourniquets and veins being pierced sensuously. In later movies, parents discover their kids are on drugs, I mean bitten by vampires, when they find their track marks, a scene always staged as a shocking reveal, the camera lingering over the round, infected holes drilled into fresh, young, virginal neck flesh. By the time you get to Dracula Has Risen from the Grave in 1968, you've got a jittery jonesing Xena, a busty vampire victim, making a Beeline for a dirty basement shooting gallery where Dracula lurks, ready to dispense her fix. The British Board of Film Censors didn't really care about the junkie allegories. They were focused exclusively on sex. And violence. And sexual violence. With Dracula, Hammer had claimed that they just wanted to make horror movies and any sex was a product of the censors' own dirty little minds. Then, Dracula composer James Bernard gave an interview with Vogue, saying Hammer had specifically asked him to write sex music for the film. The British board were furious. So in the sequel to Dracula, The Brides of Dracula was submitted. They called it Quite the stupidest vampire film so far. And the cuts kept coming. As you know from the past, we are always worried about scenes which are a mixture of vampirism and sex. 
this scene falls into this category. Real fall. Remove Professor's remark to Gerald. She was riddled with disease. The word disease implies VD, which in turn implies that the vampires had sexual intercourse with the girl. This does not give us any pleasure. The script direction says his eyes blaze with lust. His lips draw back in an animal smile. I think that we may permit him to enfold her in a not too lustful embrace and then get on with the blood sucking. But this should all be kept to an absolute minimum. We object strongly to the script dialogue which calls vampirism a filthy perversion, as filthy perversion implies a sexual implication. Page 74. In this scene again, the sex should be kept down. While the British Board of Film Censors drove Hammer filmmakers mad objecting to what was on screen, American distributors drove the Hammer C-suite mad complaining about what wasn't. Like Dracula's victims, Hammer had become locked in an addictive relationship to a substance they could not control, but they could not live without. Christopher Lee Peter Cushing was originally considered the star of Dracula, but his Van Helsing wasn't a lot of fun. He's depicted as a pinch-lipped Puritan who looks like he's free-based the Book of Deuteronomy and showers in the dark so he doesn't have to see his own naked body, and if he does catch a glimpse of his bare butt, he just punches himself in the nuts until he doesn't do it again. Hammer cast Christopher Lee as Dracula mostly because he was tall, but Lee gave Dracula a body. A young body. A young, powerful body. A young, powerful, sexy, and virile body. Lee read Bram Stoker's book before his performance, but he refused to watch Bela Lugosi. He wanted to embody a new Dracula. Decisive, charming, heroic, erotic. And he wanted to imbue him with a touch of tragedy, a whiff of loneliness, a hint of an immortal man surrounded by a ceaselessly changing world. Everyone fell in love with Christopher Lee's performance of Dracula, except Christopher Lee. He knew the dangers of getting typecast in a single role, a danger whose greatest cautionary tale was Bela Lugosi, who'd become locked in a codependent relationship with Count Dracula himself. He was number one roadkill on the highway to fame. So, after doing one Dracula, Lee went into tax exile in Switzerland. Hammer wrote Dracula out of their sequel, Brides of Dracula. Originally, Peter Cushing actually refused to do the sequel, but they won him over by bringing on a friend of his to do rewrites, and the reviews were terrible. But the box office was pretty great one more time. Over in Switzerland, Christopher Lee had learned a lesson from Hammer's arrangement with his American co-partners. To him, the future could be spelled in two words. Foreign co-productions. If Christopher Lee could become a star in Italy, Spain, France, and Germany, then he would be that rare creature, a global superstar whose name meant box office bank in 11 different countries. He could be the man who got movies greenlit. He would be the asset producers came to first. He would no longer be trapped by Dracula. The whole world would be Christopher Lee's stage. First up in his new plan of foreign global domination, playing the part of Baron Rodrigo de Braunfetten in Italy's Hard Time for Vampires, also known as Uncle Was a Vampire. Back in England, Hammer was cutting staff and trying to sell its studio. In 1962, they cobbled together a third vampire movie from discarded drafts of Brides of Dracula, 
And they called it Kiss of the Vampire. A young couple in love, enjoying a romantic honeymoon, enjoying the pleasure of each other's company, knowing the sublime happiness of the kiss of love. But the kiss of love is a stranger here, where only evil is good, and the only kiss, the kiss of the vampire. Dr. Van Helsing and Count Dracula not included. Hammer wouldn't make another vampire movie for four years. But then, two things happened. An American distributor re-released a double feature of their Curse of Frankenstein and the original Dracula from 1958 that cleaned up at the box office, reminding everyone that there was lots of money to be made with these movies. And, second, Hammer signed a deal with 20th Century Fox to make 11 co-productions. And fortunately, that's when Christopher Lee realized his plan to become an international box office superstar wasn't working out quite the way he wanted. Switzerland was actually starting to eat away at his mind. The mountains got closer every day. It could be quite claustrophobic. He returned to Hammer, ready to work. And Dracula, Prince of Darkness, opened in 1966 and was a huge hit. A lot of that attributable to Lee. His body was one of the most striking visual effects in 1960s cinema. A glowering, angular man stabbed into the earth like a spear. A vision of violence and pure carnal hunger who erupts out of the movie sets like a feral exclamation mark. Eyes red, lips slightly parted, mouth slobbering blood as he reached for his victim with fingers hooked into claws. The fact that he had absolutely zero dialogue in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, merely made his performance that much more powerful. Lee's Dracula had a seething sexual hunger for his victims' heaving cleavage as they debased themselves in filmy nightgowns for their blood fix. As the head of Hammer said, You can forget Frankenstein. It's Dracula the kids are interested in. Like the Count, Hammer had an insatiable carnal hunger of its own. A carnal hunger for another Dracula movie starring Christopher Lee. But Lee felt enough was enough. So Hammer took the script for a Lee-free vampire film to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers immediately made it clear in no uncertain terms, if Christopher Lee isn't in the picture, Warner Brothers isn't paying for the picture. So Hammer made Lee an offer he couldn't refuse. His fee for Dracula, Prince of Darkness, had been £5,000. For Dracula Has Risen From His Grave, it was £8,000. And now, for the movie they desperately needed him to do, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Christopher Lee would be paid £13,000. With Lee in its pocket, nothing could stop Hammer in its perverted parade of tight trousers, low-cut blouses, straining bosoms, pounding stakes, oozing track marks, spurting gouts of clotted red blood. Hammer movies had become a ceaseless carnival of monstrous carnality. Which wasn't exactly the kind of thing you'd expect to see at a kitty matinee, which was exactly where most of their movies were shown. 
When Dracula came out in 1958, horror was mostly considered for kids. Horror flicks were basically creaky old cornball confections used to hypnotize the kiddies comatose and compliant on a rainy day while mommy did the shopping. In June of 1957, I Was a Teenage Werewolf premiered, and it became a huge hit with the youths. Just one week before Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein opened in the States and seduced a whole legion of American preteens. No one knew that these movies really shouldn't be viewed for young kids. Then, in October of that same year, the biggest thing to happen to horror hit the small screen across television sets in every American living room. Screen Gems licensed the television rights to 600 pre-1948 black-and-white Universal movies and rolled the first ones out in a 52-film package called Shock. Bela Lugosi's Dracula was in there, premiering on WABC-TV New York on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 1957. Frankenstein was there, too. All the old favorites from the 30s and 40s, playing for children whose parents parked them in front of the boob tube every night. The package was offered mostly to independent stations, and they hit hard, with these stations seeing rating increases of between 38% and 1,125%. TV stations began dressing up employees as undertakers and vampires to become tongue-in-cheek horror hosts to make these old creaky movies feel fresh and hip for the kids. Don't be frightened. That will come later here on Creature Features. Stay with a friend. Say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. You won't sit still as demons, mummies, and mysterious forces hunt down their victims and cause your blood to run cold from the terror you'll experience on the Thriller Double Feature. Every Saturday at 2 p.m. right here on TV 20. Yes, every week. Keep your fangs pointy. Hey, good. Carry your blood. It belongs to me. <laughs> These cool ghouls hit the covers of magazines, had merchandise manufactured, and got their shows syndicated. Philadelphia's John Zacherly even recorded a single, Dinner with Drac, Part 1, that stayed on the Billboard charts for seven weeks in 1958. The fact that these safer, more subtextual old movies approved by the Hayes Code were making up the bulk of this pop culture bottle rocket sat really uneasily beside the fact that the newer color movies contained Hammer's lethal cocktail of sex, violence, and dope metaphors. As one outraged viewer wrote in a letter published by the New York Times in 1958 after Dracula opened, a boy of eight who sat in the same row with me became hysterical with fear and had to be led out by his mother. On the other side of the aisle, two small children crouched low under the seats to escape the impact of horror emanating from the screen. In the rear, a little girl suddenly began to scream. She too left the movie house with her parents shortly thereafter. America thought horror was for kiddies, but Hammer was anything but. 
And it's easy to make fun of these objections. It's easy to feel like the people writing letters to the Times were stuffy old-fashioned Puritans. And they sound quaint with these objections about cleavage and lust and kissing and sexual implications around violence. But in 1958, mixing sex and violence, as Hammer did, had explosive, career-ruining implications. Playing with the old sexy violence, especially in movies people thought were geared for children, was as dangerous as playing with nitroglycerin. Because at the same time as Hammer was coming to life, director Michael Powell was getting killed dead for doing the exact same thing. Nominated three times for an Academy Award, the beloved director of classics like The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, Michael Powell released his motion picture, Peeping Tom in 1960. Look out! Look out! Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? A movie about a voyeuristic serial-killing photographer who murdered women with a blade hidden in his camera tripod, Peeping Tom was kinky and unsettling, which was exactly what Powell wanted it to be. But then came the first sign of trouble. At the premiere, the movie played for an invitation-only audience of Powell's friends and colleagues. The film ended, the lights came up, and no one would look him in the eye. Not a single person shook his hand. The next day, the reviews began to appear. The only really satisfactory way of disposing of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. Even then, the stench would remain. In the last three months, I have carted my travel-stained carcass to some of the filthiest and most festering slums in Asia. But nothing, 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 neither the hopeless leper colonies of East Pakistan, the back streets of Bombay, nor the gutters of Calcutta has left me with such a feeling of nausea and depression as I got this week while sitting through a new British film called Peeping Tom. Michael Powell cannot wash his hands of responsibility for this essentially vicious film. Audiences turned their back on their once-beloved director, and Powell's next film flopped hard. He was forced to direct films for German television or in Australia for the rest of his very short career. Powell's motion pictures had almost single-handedly forged Britain's on-screen identity, and his movies that he made during World War II kept the nation's fighting spirits high. Even the Queen gave him special permission to shoot scenes at Buckingham Palace. But after Peeping Tom, he was never able to make a movie in Great Britain again. The same thing could have happened to Hammer, but fortunately for them, the times were changing faster than anyone could believe. Peeping Tom ruined Michael Powell's career in 1960, but four short months later, Alfred Hitchcock's equally kill-crazed and even kinkier psycho hit screens and made a mint. In a matter of months, new horror movies were pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable, while old horror movies kept getting marketed to the kids. It was absolutely schizophrenic. 
Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, with its goofy puns and chummy style, began publishing in 1958. By popular demand, the Aurora Model Company started issuing its monster models of Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman in 1961. The novelty single, The Monster Mash, flew up the charts to number one in 1962. Then in 1964, The Monsters and the Addams Family premiered on TV, and Grandpa Monster became everyone's famous cuddly comedy vampire. Everyone's heads were spinning. How could anyone possibly keep up? The British Board of Film Censors certainly couldn't. When Dracula had come out in 1958, they wrote, It is important that the women in the film should be decently clad, not seen in transparent nightdresses or with bared breasts or in any unduly suggestive garments. By the time Twins of Evil rolled around 13 years later, transparent nightdresses were standard-issue uniforms for Hammer. Soft-focus lovemaking scenes abounded. Vampires' victims gave suggestive handjobs to candles and moaned in orgasmic delight as needle-sharp fangs penetrated their fresh necks. The British Board of Film Censors could not stop the times. After much back and forth over Vampire Circus in 1972, they demanded Hammer cut a close-up of a face getting stabbed, then shrugged and let them leave in all the simulated sex, relentless gore, nudity, bestiality, and incest. But just as the British Board of Film Censors couldn't keep up with Hammer, as the 50s turned into the 60s, as the 60s turned into the 70s, Hammer couldn't keep up with their audiences. As 1970 approached, they were learning the hard lesson that too many boobs were never enough for increasingly jaded audiences, but they kept shoveling them at cinema screens as fast as they could. To diminishing returns. Television, rock music, sex, drugs, it kept the kids out of the movie houses. Cinemas all over England were shedding audiences. 75% of them were gone by 1970, and 50% of British movie houses would close over that decade. By the time Hammer was paying Christopher Lee £13,000 for Taste the Blood of Dracula, and the new head of Warner Brothers was signing up to get one new Hammer horror movie a year, well, that was actually about the time that audiences stopped caring about Hammer's films. As Hammer producer Aida Young said, It was the beginning of the end and everybody knew it. There was a feeling at Hammer that no one was running the show and the accountants had taken over the studio. As another producer said, Nobody gave a damn. Lee wanted out, but every time he rattled his chains, the producers called and told him that the movie had already been sold and if he backed out now, Warners would bail, the studio would go dark, people would be out of work, children would starve in the streets. As Lee became numb to that strategy, Hammerhead Honcho James Carreras tried a more direct method. Every single time I turned it down, I got a telephone call from James Carreras. Lee complained in a later interview. You can't say no. I'm in my 60s. I can't cope with this kind of strain and pressure indefinitely. I beg you to do this film. This film. This film. Jimmy made it a personal thing on the basis of our friendship. It was wrong. There's no question about it. The New York Times review of Lee's fifth Dracula movie for Hammer already read, Avoid this Dracula like the plague. It's garish, gory junk. But Hammer still had eight more vampire pictures to go. 
By 1972, they were ready to try anything to keep their audiences, even updating Dracula to modern-day London with Dracula AD 1972, a film full of hippie kids dropping out and getting groovy and saying, let's go looking for kicks and summon Satan, man. There were miniskirts, rock bands, and grown men unable to figure out that Alucard is an anagram for Dracula. It all felt really, really tired. By the time Dracula AD 1972 stumbled on screen, Stanley Kubrick had already shocked audiences with the old ultraviolence in A Clockwork Orange. Alfred Hitchcock's frenzy had given audiences a woman being strangled by a serial killer in close-up as his sweat dripped onto her dying face. There'd been the shocking straw dogs from Sam Peckinpah, Ken Russell's blasphemous barn burner, The Devils, had practically driven the British Board of Film Censors mad, and Hammer Films felt like a visit to Grandma's house. Where Warner Brothers had eagerly signed up for an annual Hammer horror picture a few years before, by the time Hammer delivered a kung fu vampire flick, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, in 1974, everything had changed. Warner Brothers actually took Legend and stuck it on a shelf for five years, finally selling it cheap to low-budget distributors. That low-budget distributor's name? Milton Sabotsky. The same Milton Sabotsky who'd come up with the idea of knocking off Frankenstein in the first place. Sabotsky took Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, hacked it to pieces, and dumped it on the action circuit. It was a bad picture when we got it, and an even worse one when we finished with it, he said. 1967's blockbuster must-read book, Rosemary's Baby, proved there was an adult audience for horror out there, waiting for the right movie. And 1968's Night of the Living Dead's gut-munching ghouls decided decisively that horror was not just for kiddies anymore. By 1973, The Exorcist had become the adult-oriented, zeitgeist-changing horror hit of the decade, alongside Rosemary's Baby from a few years before, while Hammer offered up The Satanic Rites of Dracula, in which the Count is transformed into a boardroom Bond villain out to poison the entire world with the bubonic plague. No one cared. I'm doing it under protest, Lee said of that film. I think it's fatuous. I can think of 20 adjectives. Fatuous, pointless, absurd. I don't see the point. Neither did anyone else. Hammer's audience was gone. Some of their movies from the early 70s would take 20 years to recoup their costs. Warner wouldn't even release their final Dracula film in America until 1978. By then... Hammer had already shot their final movie. One year later, the company went into liquidation. Count Dracula had proved he was immortal. Hammer Films was not. Like some kind of motion picture producing Renfield, Hammer Films made themselves the servant of Dracula. They resurrected him from the grave, made him young and sexy, and embodied him in Christopher Lee, the most iconic big-screen Dracula since Bela Lugosi. But when Dracula was done with Hammer, when he had sucked out of them everything he needed to come back to life, he dumped the drained corpse of the studio in a ditch and moved on. Hammer made Dracula live again, but Dracula wound up killing the studio 
that saved him. In this episode of Super Scary Haunted Homeschool, Michael Zaccardi played Christopher Lee. Chris Sharps played Terence Fisher. Our British Board of Film Censors were Dean Sharp, Dan Brownlee, Jessica Bonner Brownlee, and Mike C. Walls. The voices of the press were provided by Dean Sharp, Dan Brownlee, and Jessica Bonner Brownlee. Super Scary Haunted Homeschool is produced by Chris LaMartina and Mike C. Walls. It's edited and engineered by Mike C. Walls, and it's written and narrated by me, Grady Hendricks.